The Genius of Creation, Chapter 8, Continuing Reading from Wisdom and Understanding. Wisdom and Understanding The Bible does not counsel us to avoid wisdom, quite the reverse. The Bible demands wisdom. Rather, it counsels us to avoid that wisdom which is foolishness with God. Paul emphasizes that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, he says in 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 to 25. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold on her, and happy is every one that retaineth her. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. We read in Proverbs 3. Therefore get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting get understanding. Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 7. Why hadn't they eaten of the tree of life, which would have been preferable? There was no prohibition against it. As I have indicated before, the tree of life was not attractive, and in any case they didn't need life. They already had it. The tree would only become desirable when they were cut off from it. I say the tree was not attractive because of Isaiah's statement referring ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, which beauty certainly was spiritually by the time of the Lord's birth. He hath no form no, nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53 verse 3 Their eyes were opened, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Their age of innocency was over. Disobedience had brought about a fatal moral change. A number of points come out of this verse. Firstly, that we cannot save ourselves. No fig-leaf devices to cover sin can avail anything. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 verse 13. Psalm 49 verses 7 to 9 says, None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give a ransom for him, that he should still live for ever and not see corruption. To which Psalm 22 verse 29 adds, None can keep alive his own soul. Only in Jesus Christ the Son of God is forgiveness of sins, and therefore eternal life available. Secondly, they now knew that they were naked. Obviously they knew this before they sinned. 
But something had happened other than eating their, the forbidden fruit that made them embarrassingly aware of each other, which they had not been before. It wasn't the fruit that changed things. It was the act of disobedience that activated their conscience. That act of disobedience had opened their eyes to their nakedness and awakened desire. Once desire was consummated, fig leaves sewed together became necessary to cover the part of their bodies which had suddenly become private. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son, Cain. Though at the time she would not know that she had conceived. James in the New Testament therefore describes the process by which sin works in us as Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. James chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. In other words, James says that sin is conceived in the mind as a child is conceived within its mother. The sinful idea then grows in the mind like a child in the womb until, just as the child comes to the birth, so the sin is committed. But when the child is grown and become aged, in like manner sin brings death, and there is no escaping it. Only the Lord Jesus Christ succeeded, whereas all others fail. By this means he was raised from the tomb. The grave could not hold him, we find in Acts chapter 2. Good and evil. The good and evil of sin, desirable and good to commit, but evil in its consequences, made them realise that sin isn't worth it. But despite that knowledge, sin had become well-nigh irresistible. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know it to be true. None can go through life without experiencing good and evil. Not just happy, pleasant times, but war, famine, accident, sickness, pain, mourning for loved ones, etc., and it's the evil that seems to dominate until at last death conquers all. The wages of sin is death. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The word evil is used in a variety of ways, but here it is obviously used in the sense that the Lord creates evil as a punishment for sin. That punishment is just. It is not of itself evil. It is only evil in the mind of the sinner because of its effects upon him or her. So in the Old Testament, Bildad describes death as the king of terrors. In Job 18, verse 14. Centuries later, the preacher wrote, Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun.
But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that cometh is vanity. Ecclesiastes 11 verses 7 to 8. So life is a mixture of good and bad, blessing and evil. But there is a purpose in the good and bad in the life of an obedient believer. The Apostle Paul confirmed this when he wrote, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For example, think of Job. His suffering was extreme. Was it time and event? No. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. We read in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1. His suffering was to save the life of his Satan, a fellow worshipper jealous of Job's family and prosperity, if he repented. Also the lives of his friends who spoke wrongly of God. For the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. We read in Job 42. Think of Joseph's life, and then his words to his brethren. Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. This was Genesis 50, verse 20. Is this not the pattern of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord? Isn't this the means whereby God has saved much people alive for himself? Is it not an illustration for us of what it means to deny oneself and to take up our cross daily and follow him? Luke 9, verse 23. But, of course, we do not have the understanding and wisdom to know what is good or evil in what the Father is working in our lives through his angels. When the Lord has come, we will find that some things that we thought were good in our lives were in fact evil. And what we considered to be evil actually worked for good in the light of our Creator's eternal purpose with us. The Voice of God And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the midst of the garden in the cool, the Ruach, of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and his wife soon realised that fig leaf coverings are inadequate. It takes us a while longer to come to this realisation, because when they heard the voice of the Lord God in the midst of the garden, in the cool of the day, presumably toward evening when cooling breezes occur, Adam and his wife hid themselves among the trees. Mankind in general is still trying to hide from God. But God sees all. I am a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. This from Jeremiah 23, verse 23 to 24. From our English translation, it reads as if it was a pleasant evening when God spoke to Adam and his wife. But then we notice that the word cool in the phrase cool of the day 
is in the King James Version margin wind, ruach. Ruach, meaning wind or spirit, is a lot more than just cool of the day. It conveys the idea of invisible force. For example, Ruach was the power of creation in Genesis 1 verse 2. In the garden it was probably a strengthening wind that signalled the approach of the divine presence. It was the kind of wind or whirlwind that introduced God speaking to Job in Job 37 the whirlwind of the cherubim in Ezekiel 1 verse 4, the strong east wind that parted the waters at the Red Sea in Exodus 14. That was a prelude of the dramatic theophany to Elijah on Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19 that caused the fearful storm that led to the prophet Jonah being cast into the sea to save the lives of the sailors. Jonah 1 verse 4 a tempest, Psalm 11, verse 6, a blast, Isaiah 25, verse 4, etc. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 10, Adam hears God's voice, but the Hebrew word denotes thunder as well as voice. Seven times in Psalm 29 this phrase, voice of the Lord, is used of the sound of mighty rolling thunder in a terrifying storm that describes the Lord's glory and strength. This storm, with its thunder of the Lord God's approach, struck fear into the man and woman, and they rushed to hide among the trees, no doubt fearing that the sentence of death was about to come upon them. They had never experienced anything like this before. Then out of the storm the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where art thou? Adam was addressed first, because he had been given the responsibility to keep and guard the garden. Of course God knew exactly where Adam was. That is why he spoke to him. God also knew exactly what they had done. On the face of it, this enquiry was unnecessary. Just execute the prescribed penalty and it would be all over. But no. God would not allow the purpose of his creation of life on earth to be frustrated by man. He does not allow his plans to fail. His purpose with mankind would still stand. But how? We'll see. Would Adam deny his sin? Would he try to blame his wife, or would he confess? Which way it goes would determine whether the sentence should be executed or whether there were grounds for forgiveness. The whole future of mankind hung in the balance depending on Adam's reaction. Confession and Redemption Adam, realising that the game was up, gave himself away when he replied to God's question directed to him through an angel, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and, and I hid myself. Naked? So much for fig leaves. None of man's devices can cover the conscience. Only God, through his Son Jesus Christ, can do that. Not even the Lord of Moses could save. Paul taught that if offerings under the law could save, then 
the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For by one offering he hath perfected for ever them that are sanctified. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Hebrews chapter 10. Fear and nakedness had led Adam to tell the truth and admit his offence. From Adam's initial reply, John Thomas writes of Adam's fear, shame and concealment in Elpis Israel, chapter 4. This was a significant sign of the defilement of conscience awakened by sin. Note how the whole process is reversed in Christ when sin is confessed. Concealment is replaced by open confession. Shame is replaced by a good conscience through forgiveness. And fear is replaced by confidence in God and his Son. For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. This says Peter in his first epistle, chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Adam's Confession Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Adam's statement is generally taken as Adam blames his wife, and it's partly God's fault for not giving him a better wife. If that were true, then surely God would have dealt with Adam rather differently than the way he did. In fact, since Adam had not then named his wife, he was to name her Eve later, he could only refer to her as the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. The phrase is not an accusation of the woman, nor of the Creator who gave her to him. Adam made no excuses. He didn't say, it's her fault. He laid no blame on his wife, though some prefer to read it that way. He just states the facts and said, And I did eat, thereby taking the responsibility for the sin upon himself. He did not even say that his wife had eaten of the fruit. He protected her. Had he not mentioned the simple facts, then God's next question would have been, Why did you eat? And it would have been more difficult to avoid blaming his wife by saying, She took the fruit first and talked me into it. Adam just states the facts without really incriminating his wife. He admits he ate and tries to take the Lord's God's attention off her. 
nor did he blame God for giving him such a wife. Adam openly confessed his own sin, which was why God opened the dialogue in the first place, giving Adam an opportunity to repent and receive forgiveness instead of merely pronouncing judgment. As an aside, many a man looks for a better wife than the one he's got. Though sight unseen, God gave Adam the perfect wife for him. We choose for ourselves, so there is none to blame but ourselves if we don't make the most of what we have. This is Adam's confession of guilt. He failed, but knew better. The woman's confession. Though Adam confessed his guilt, there was no immediate word of either condemnation or forgiveness from the Lord God. First, the Lord God turns to the woman and asks a different question. What is this that thou hast done? The woman replied, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. In this she just states the facts. She should not have allowed herself to be beguiled by the serpent, but she was. Like Adam, she admits she failed, but knew better. Don't we all? Nor did she imply that it was really God's fault for making such a beguiling creature as the serpent. She could have blamed Adam by saying, It's his fault. How was I to know? He didn't instruct me properly. Neither Adam nor his wife tried to clear themselves with some involved explanation to say, It wasn't my fault. Nor did they blame each other. Had they done so, forgiveness would not have been possible. We cannot look down on Adam and his wife. We have nothing to boast about. The scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 22. The first pair were in the best state in the garden, yet sinned. We do not live in the garden, but in a world full of open and subtle temptation, blasphemy, ingratitude and wickedness, and we fall often. How thankful we should be that our God is ready to forgive us if we allow him to. The Terms of Forgiveness The Lord God had initiated this dialogue. He had no need to do so, but it did result in confession of sin, something they had not had to consider before. The Apostle John spells out very clearly the terms upon which sin is forgiven when he wrote, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This in the first of John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Strangely, most Christians accept that the sentence of death prescribed in Genesis 2 verse 17, was executed without realising the contradiction this causes. 
In fact, because of their confession, the sentence their sin required was not executed. Their sin was forgiven. How do we know that? Because the Apostle Paul says so when he wrote of Eve, she shall be saved through the childbearing if they, Adam and Eve, continue in faith and sobriety, which they obviously did. This we read in the first of Timothy chapter 2 verse 14 and 15. Also it is written in Genesis 3 verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Nearly all Christians accept that the clothing of Adam and his wife with skins was a sign that their sin was covered and thereby forgiven. The act of clothing anticipated the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. See notes on verse 21, John 1 verse 29. We cannot say that they were forgiven and the sentence prescribed executed. That is an impossible contradiction. It has to be one or the other. It cannot be both. The contrast is seen in chapter 4, when the Lord spoke to Cain about his brother Abel. Because Cain refused to repent, he was punished. Of course, an objector might say that Adam and his wife were punished. I will look at this objection when we consider what God subsequently says to the woman and her husband. Another objection proposed to the idea that the first human pair were forgiven is Job's statement. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom, this in Job 31 verse 33. However, the King James Version margin says not as Adam, but after the manner of men. Why is this alternative suggested? In Hebrew, the normal word for man is Adam. In this passage in Job, Adam is not a name. It should have been translated as men. Compare that statement with Hosea's. But they like men, King James Version margin, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. Hosea 6 verse 7. The fact is that the Hebrew word Adam is the word for man as well as the name of the first man. Adam did not hide his sin in his bosom, but immediately confessed when the Lord spoke to him, as did Eve. They both knew the game was up. The passage in Job does not contradict the concept that because Adam confessed his sin he was forgiven. It does admit, though, that men and women do normally try to hide their sin. If it wasn't so, the courts would have a lot less to do. Mercy, the Lord's primary characteristic. So the first sin revealed the primary characteristic of the Lord. Mercy. This is highlighted when the Lord's memorial name of Yahweh was announced to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and destroying not utterly the guilty. This translation of Exodus 34 is John Thomas's translation, which is found in Faith in the Last Days, the, under the section, The Goodness of God. The King James Version says that will by no means clear the guilty. The prophet Ezekiel was told to say to Judah, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33 verse 11 Thoughtful Bible readers know that the God of the Old Testament is not a severe, implacable God, as he is often made out to be. He is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, but not weak. He is consistent in showing mercy to those who do not make excuses, but who confess their sin and seek his honour, not their own. The psalmist David wrote under inspiration, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Psalm 103, verse 10 to 18. Therefore, enter ye in at the strait, the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many go in thereat. Because strait is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14.